Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Telekinesis, the laziest superpower of them all. Now, let's dim the lights with the remote control and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Tyrell Corporation. Designing the future in robotic labor... Labor that still hates that it's labor because employees whistling while they work is so annoying. Robot hands that feel your pain only at Tyrell Corporation. Welcome, everybody, to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are back. Sorry for uh, the one or two day layoff. Um, it's been crazy over here for uh, both of us, maybe more for Todd than me. But uh, if you have not listened to our show before, this is a film podcast. We are writers. Uh, I'm a full-time writer-director. Todd's a full-time producer. We're both actors. Uh, Todd's a musician. All the things. And what we do here at The Pestle is break down shows. We try to pick them apart, see what makes them work, uh, what makes them tick or not tick in some cases, and what do we love about it, what could be done better in our opinion, which you may or may not consider an expert opinion, <laughs> depending <laughs> on your own level of expertise. Oh, it is. Just trust us. <laughs> yeah, right. No Dunning-Kruger here, uh, in effect. Um, right. Yeah, so it has been kind of crazy. Um, you moved across the country from Texas to California uh, while also trying to maintain a full-time job as a producer. And one of the things you've been saying, you know, the last few months, uh, maybe a month or two before you left was no problems, only solutions. Anytime something <laughs> popped up, your <laughs> motto was no problems, only solutions. Yeah. So how did Which that work true. out? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not true. There are definitely problems. Uh, no, it's fine. You know, the, the move is great. I know everyone, um, everyone I tell, that I moved to California to is it's like, wait a minute, everybody's going the other way. Why are you going that way? Uh, wife got a job out here, a fantastic job and I'm really proud of her. And so, um, it was good enough opportunity where we uprooted our family. Right. And yeah, it's been hard, you know, switching over, um, and the transition, but making the most of it, you know, every day. And it's beautiful out here. Got mountains now. I love mountains. I love trees. Trees are ridiculous, uh, ridiculously beautiful. Um, we're not too close to the fires. The fire is about two, 300 miles away, but you know, it gets smoky, you know, some days it's pretty smoky. Dang. Not too bad. Not too bad. Hmm. Yeah. Well, congrats, man. Well-deserved for Thanks. Jenny. Um, I, I'm, sounds like she's having a good time teaching at a pretty ideal school for, uh, what she wants out of teaching. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, definitely. You know, cool. I, I mean, and the other thing is like one of the reasons why we did it is because, I mean, you know, and we've talked about this, uh, you know, personally too, if you sit still too long, you know, then you don't grow. Right. And when life throws you an opportunity to really change something, change something that normally you would never change on your own, it's almost a waste not to take that opportunity. Right. And, you know, is it hard? Yes. All our family is in Texas. We're both from Texas. And while we don't subscribe politically, you know, to the state, it's our home. And there's a million, a million wonderful things about it. And so we didn't leave for any of those reasons. You know, we left for an opportunity. And I think, I think that that's, that's important for, for me to remember too, because 
<laughs> it's it's the story of uh, it's the story of God sending you a lifeboat, right? Why didn't you save me? I sent you a lifeboat, and so and this is kind of a, a similar situation. Like there's an opportunity, you either take it or you don't. And then six months down the road, I wish I would have taken that opportunity. I never want to regret yeah. something like that. So so yeah, it, I, I'm really proud that we made this decision. I'm proud of my wife and my kids who have been really really amazing through the whole the whole process. I know it's been hard for them leaving their friends and their family. Um, but they, for the most part, keep a very positive attitude, you know, all the time and do the best they can. And I know it's asking a lot, but they've been, they've been wonderful. So I miss you, man. Uh, you know, working out together and, um, and seeing you three days a week and doing this, uh, I'm glad we're getting back at it. Cause, uh, I kind of, I kind of needed that stability back in. <laughs> Same. Yeah. You like getting into the gym and humiliating me with every lift. Uh, yeah. So I missed that. That's cool. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> what? I'm not laughing, but I love it. I mean, I love that, you know, it's what most good stories begin with, um, which is a call to adventure. Right. Yeah. And try as you might, you just can't say no to a, a good adventure. Um, and yeah. at the worst you get to say, you know what, that didn't work out, uh, the way we wanted. So, you know, we'll take a mulligan, we'll come back. Uh, and if it does yeah. work out, then, you know, all the better, like there's, there's no losing in this scenario. And so I'm really glad that you did take the opportunity and that's, you know, encouraging to, I hope everybody, you know, to, to hear someone that, that takes a risk. That's a really a big risk. I mean, you, you yeah. left everything, you know, into uh, a really interesting part of the country, San Francisco Bay area has got a lot going on over there. Um, yeah. And I, I want to say thank you because you were, you and one of my wife's friends were the only two people to say go or to not say anything at all. Right. Every other person I told, um, well, actually, Joe, uh, Joe was like, this is awesome. So there was only a couple of people that actually were supportive, you know, and if, if not, if you were, even if you weren't supportive, it's like having a buddy who's dating someone, dating a woman <laughs> who's like awful, right? <laughs> you know, just, just like the Ted Lasso episode, this week. you don't say anything, you just keep your mouth shut. Um, and I know how you felt. Yeah. I know you didn't want me to go. Yeah. Duh, shit. But you know what good does it do for you to say this is why you shouldn't go and this is why you shouldn't go? Yeah, none. Because I'm going to make the decision, and it is what it is, and it just made it a little bit, a little bit easier to take that risk. So thank you awesome. for that, man, dude. My yeah. pleasure. Solid. Always want to see the people in our lives do well, right? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hell to the yeah. So Hell. with that said, uh, what are we going to cover this week? Yeah, this week we are covering Blade Runner, the original from 1982. Uh, so if you haven't seen the movie, please pause this episode and go watch it. Uh, I don't believe it's streaming anywhere, but you can rent it for four bucks on Amazon or whatever and watch it and then come back and, and listen because there'll be spoilers all over the place. Yeah, and you could probably pick it up at like a Goodwill for a dollar somewhere too. Yeah, so like, that's true. There's true. probably no shortage of Blade Runner in the world right now. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and yeah, we'll talk about a few things. We'll we'll touch on the styling of Blade Runner, right? How they styled the future, uh, future the visual and world building of Blade Runner. Um, we'll dive into some of the story and writing, right? The pacing and the meaning of the story and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. A Blade Runner must pursue and terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. Directed by Ridley Scott, 
written by Hampton Francher and David Webb Peoples, based on the novel by Philip K. Dick, cinematography by Jordan Corninwith, starring Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, Sean Young as Rachel, Rucker Hauer as Roy Batty, Daryl Hannah as Pris, Edward James Almos as Gaff, Brian James as Leon Kowalski, Joe Turkle as Dr. Eldon Terrell, Joanna Cassidy as Zora, and William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Hmm. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. So this could go so many ways. And I'm curious, you probably didn't grow up with Blade Runner. Um, I mean, if you did, you know, correct me. But how does this play for you? Do you like it? Uh, is there things you love and hate or is it all great or is it all bad? I don't know. Like, give me yeah. give me your feel on this one. Yeah, I've seen it before. But this is uh, I don't know. I think I've seen it three times now. And okay, let me start off by saying 1982, amazing. Like, you know, the way, just, just pick a way you want to shape the future. Why not? You know, like the, the design is beautiful. Uh, the buildings are incredible. I love, you know, you feel like you're in that world. Of course, there's flying cars. Why wouldn't there be flying cars, right? You know, I love that, that he took his time. There's a lot of silence. There's a lot of like, waiting and stuff and I, I love what they did with the eyes with rep, the replicants just i mean was that practical mm -hmm. yeah that's an effect that i want to use for one of our projects yeah that you want to do okay yeah. cool that's yeah um and they did it hardcore you know and it's amazing i do love that with that aside i hated it <laughs> i absolutely hated it i could it took me days to get through it i couldn't i I'm not even kidding. It took me three days to get through it. I, I started watching. I was like, I hate this. 20, 30 minutes in, I was like, I can't do this anymore. 45 minutes in, I was like, off. And then the next day, I sat back down. I was like, I got to finish this. I got to finish this. I got 45 minutes through. I started falling asleep. I was like, man, I can't. I got to watch it. So I came back the next day, watched the whole thing. I hated it. I hated it. I just, it was, I didn't like the music. I liked the sounds, but I didn't like the music. If that makes any sense, mm -hmm. the acting was terrible. The sound design was awful. The ADR was God awful. It was super cheesy, like tears in the rain. I hate that. It was just nothing about it for me in 2021 and who I am as a person enjoyed it. Hmm. I would say out of all the movies we've covered, this is my least favorite. That's not easily. True. You're lying. 
you're such a liar right now. You this is this is recency bias. You've only because you just watched this and tell had to me, sit through it. Tell me the room. There's yeah, you definitely don't hate this more than the room. You definitely don't hate this more than uh <sighs> Okay. The, the Revenge of the yeah. Fallen or whatever that Transformers thing we watched was. I prefer I would rather watch Transformers ten times than watch this movie again. <laughs> And I might, I might have recency bias. You're right. I, I absolutely might. And you know what? I'll chalk it up. I'll chalk about 20% of it up to that. But I just, I was, I was trying to also wonder like, how do I come in here and talk about this? Because yeah. it's an iconic film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a seminal film um, that changed a lot of filmmaking from that point on. And for, so for that, I'm very grateful to it. And I think that really Scott was, you know, beyond his, his time and, a brilliant, brilliant director who had so much insight. I just think if you want really Scott, watch Aliens. Don't watch this, really. Or Alien. Sorry, yeah. I said Aliens. Yeah. Watch Alien. Don't watch this. That is... Uh, so anyway, yeah. I don't know how, how else to say it. I know that it's important and I want to like it and I just don't. I think that's all fine, actually. I mean, I, I don't have a problem necessarily with all of that. There is one thing I'm like hardcore disagree with um but cool. it's all a matter of taste but i'm curious like story-wise was there anything that bothered you that you didn't like it's one thing to just hate it all together probably because it's very slow and um it's it, it rushes nothing even the things it's not rushing it doesn't rush not rushing it like it's it's just you know mm-hmm. sometimes painfully slow but i'm curious if there's like story things that bothered you or if it was more just the 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 agony of of waiting um, no, no, that's fair. I liked the story. I yeah. mean, I think that it could have, you know, had really Scott made it now, it would have felt different. It didn't feel like I understand the story. I like the storyline. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I get it. Um, but I think that it would have been told a little bit with, with a little bit more, a little bit more pointed if it was told now. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, very Pretty. open yeah they don't hammer home anything and they they could do more here and there to kind of point at what they're trying to uh, put their finger on and that is definitely a matter of taste like there's another director out there david lowry uh, lowry that he's a lot of miss more than hit for me and he just leaves it also open that it just feels like you didn't want to write certain things um, out of laziness more than the ideas were clearly there, but the execution just felt a little too hands off instead of like putting your hand in a little bit more to, to shape the, the emotions or, or the story beats, or even just fleshing out some of the ideas and concepts that you're driving at. And this felt very hands off in that way, because it's there, the, the ideas are very clearly there. Um, they open, invite a lot of question, but what I find, I think one, one of the reasons I was laughing is because depending on the day, I agree with you. And it depends on the day and my mood on how I watch this movie that will kind of determine whether I love this movie or like it just drives me crazy. And so I've watched it twice in the past two, three days. Um, The first time I watched it, it it was agony for me. I was just like, oh my God, it's so gorgeous. But I'm just bored out of my mind and some of these things don't make sense to me. And then whenever I sat down a couple of hours ago, uh, to sit and, you know, make some notes. I was enthralled. Like I loved it. I couldn't look away almost. And I, I was just really enjoying it. So I think 
for me, the first time I watched it, I didn't grow up with this. Uh, my brother loved it growing up, but for some reason, I never saw it. I don't know how he saw it and I didn't, but that's kind of, I remember pieces kind of, um, but I didn't watch it until I was, you know, not that long ago as a full grown adult. And I watched it and I remember feeling that same kind of like just tedium. And then I was like, Oh my God. Uh, and Mike Cook was like, Hey, our buddy, um, was like, Hey, it's, it's showing in a, in theaters. Let's go check it out. And so I went with him to watch it and sat in a theater and I loved it. And I think it's something you really, the setting and maybe your, your mental state contributes for me, definitely contributed to it. Uh, I loved it in the theater and I think I hated that home. If you look away for more than five seconds, it probably within that five seconds, they're going to slip in some important exposition that's visual only. And you have to start connecting all these things. And for me, I think on my first viewing a couple of days ago, I, I looked away one too many times and got lost in the story. And I'm like, wait, why are we here? What is happening? <sighs> and now this random thing is happening. Uh, whereas whenever I was like glued to it and I was putting together uh, all the things that were happening and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, now we're going to go do this. We got to follow up on this lead. And I was experiencing it more from Decker's perspective than uh, I think I was before. And so I don't know. I think it's some of that is mixed in there. Uh, the thing that I really disagree with, I love that, like the soundbite we, that we just played, freaking love it, especially because that was a uh, an improvised line by Rutger Hauer, where I think the line is more along, you know, it's supposed to end at uh, all these moments lost in time. And then he adds like tears and rain because it was raining and he was actually crying in the scene, but you can't tell that he's crying because of all the rain. And so I think he felt compelled to to add this line. Um, which was just a perfect kind of poetic, you know, punchline to it. And I love, I love that line so much. Um, and it's getting at a larger kind of story thing that I think they're driving at, but yeah. So for me, I, I fall on both line, both sides of the fence on this one, kind of depending on the day because the aesthetics are all so good. It's just a gorgeous film. Um, and yeah, if I got a chance to see it in a theater, I think it'd be a very different experience, obviously. I, probably. Yeah. Uh, and there's very few things that don't hold up visually. Like there's, what is his name? Leon, right? He gets shot in the head and it's this bloodless brain shot. And you're just like, oh, that's odd. And there's a slow-mo, brief slow-mo shot where Zora's falling down and you're just like, oh, you, you undercranked it. Um, and, or maybe it wasn't even undercranked. I think it was just slowed down 24 frames per second. And it just kind of gets this choppy aesthetic and I'm like, yeah uh, it's 80s yeah it's very 80s very 80s but then the rest of that sequence it it looked like he he switched the frame rate back to something normal and so yeah it's overall like other than that i felt like visually this thing is just very pleasing and it has all these very noir aesthetics to it right the the slanted lights coming through the the slatted windows or whatever um which is really hard for me Honestly, not me personally. I've never been a noir fan. Mm. It's just, it's very hard. I'm a, cause I, I think, cause I'm just, a, I'm, I don't know. I, I know you are too, but I'm a mm -hmm. very visual person. And so when I don't have a lot of visual information, it's hard for me to like stay with it. Right. So I have yeah. to go internal 
mm-hmm. when I don't have a lot of color or something that pops or whatever. And it's like, you know, hard light through a slatted window, you know, on someone's face. Well, I don't have enough information on that person's face to really even for that to even be like the main thing for my brain to latch on to. So I, 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 I do understand that it's that that's a that's an important medium you know mm-hmm. i just have never been yeah like super on it yeah to be it's honest. fair no i think it's fair i mean i'll dive in a few things here and you know yeah jump in as things pop out to you like styling the the future that's always a, an interesting thing and for 1982 um this was a seemed to be a seminal moment in you know cinematic history because like you said this is an iconic film um, and so some of the things that I, I saw that they were doing that everyone obviously sees that they're doing wardrobe wise, very odd things. Sometimes like Tyrell's, uh, bifocals were interesting, right? He's got the bifocal thing in the middle of the lens. And maybe that's a popular thing. I've, I've never run into that, or at least don't remember running into that style of bifocal before where you have upper and lower are the same, I think distant focused and then the middle chunk is like for near-sighted stuff i don't know it's cool um, but it they go over the top with everything i guess is my point right deckard is in a trench coat everyone's got these pop collars a lot of 80s fashion um that was uh, loud hair loud outfits right glitter painted faces they have kind of these runway hats that you might find in uh, a new york runway strip blinky lights right a lot of cultural fusion which was pretty cool this is definitely where it gets more uh, futurism uh, like they're blending these japanese aztec and latin aesthetics and even the language i think is uh, blended up there's constant rain right dark i don't think we're ever in the daylight really i mean even in the even in the daylight, it's like dusk. It's the sun is setting, right? It's brief and uh, and it's creating a very dystopian feel uh, because the whole idea of dystopia is the world has gotten worse. The world is bad and almost it's it's ending. And so having the only time we see the sun is that it's on the horizon kind of calls back to this dystopian problem that we're all facing of the end of the world. And that's kind of a visual cue that plays into that. But a lot of neon lighting, the architecture is brutalist, right? It's very basic um, and strong and minimalist. uh, And it's not there for the pleasure of your eye and and a fun sense. Instead, it's almost, you know, this throwback to darker times almost uh maybe not quite you know nazi germany um but it's very it's brutalist it's it's dark times i think of whenever i think of brutalist architecture i usually think of something like russian architecture german architecture um and it's just heavy and i don't know i mean i guess brutal is really is the right word right is it's not friendly it's not soft it's hard the the streets it's very dirty it's dreary it's crowded spotlights constantly searching um which adds in again to this dystopian idea that there's not enough space and um nothing feels uh sterilized and you know there's infections everywhere you step uh let alone space to breathe smoke smog it's everywhere right it just feels terrible uh but then they also have some of these futurism concepts that you'll find uh, you know in a lot of places flying cars 
Um, the buildings themselves, even though that, you know, the brutalists, they're also massive, way bigger than any building, uh, we've ever seen. And it gives this sense, this feeling that there's also social restructuring because who lives in those buildings? Um, they kind of tower above the rest of society. But even when you get into some of those buildings, like the opening, when we meet Leon getting his interview, uh, the void comp test, it has this, you're in this nice, or huge over towering building, but you also feel trapped in it now that we're in his perspective. Like it feels very cubicled and, and, and unpleasing and unfun to be in there. And so even though he might be making his way up into the upper tier society, there's still a sense of working class uh, aspect to it until you get into Tyrell's office into his environment. And now it feels like, Oh, this feels more luxurious but it's still not comforting. Like it's, it's still brutal, even in the interior design of the most powerful man, probably in the world, but certainly in the city. And so all that kind of plays in and the technology, you know, feels mostly unexplained. Like things are just kind of happening and they don't really explain it. You get the sense that there's ideas behind it. Uh, like I love the, the researcher who's in the lab designing these eyes. He's got these tubes running into a suit. And if you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, that's keeping him heated. Like that's, that's a heating device because he's working in this frozen lab, but they don't really explain a lot of stuff. There's eggs being cooked, presumably like sous vide. They're being boiled in this weird thing. They don't really, you know, go out of their way. The cars, you know, just kind of fly around and there's flames burning and at the top of buildings and they're just doing all this random stuff and you're like whoa this feels terrible but also really cool <laughs> um and then of course at the at the center of the story we have androids which is you know hyper future and i think in a lot of the cyberpunk and futuristic stories the theme especially in uh the cyberpunk stories the theme and story is usually centered around humanity evolving or dealing with technological innovation that come along with ethical dilemmas and questions and of course that's exactly like we've developed androids replicants that look and feel just like humans but it's creating some dilemmas and and ethical quandaries that uh, they they hint at they don't really even put their finger on it very directly they're expecting you to walk away with questions and and thoughts about everything you just experienced um, and so overall the styling is very noir right dark hazy atmosphere these light streaks Deckard himself has a very strong Humphrey Bogart vibe and Bogart is well known for a lot of these classic noirs um, and whatever the 30s 40s 50s I'm I forget what era he was really even uh, mostly in but uh, I think Casablanca was 43 so easily the 40s and probably 50s and maybe into the 60s but overall right we just have very strong visual aesthetics that redefine science fiction and was a major jump off uh, point for cyberpunk making a cultural mark because it was leading up I mean this is all inspired by uh, a novel by Philip K. Dick that was written in uh, 68 and so it, there was like rumblings of cyberpunk. Um, and then one or two years after this, Neuromancer came out, which is a crazy book and a very difficult read if, if you're like me and who needs a little bit more description uh, and, and segues. Cyberpunk or Neuromancer has zero segues. You just kind of suddenly find yourself doing really random things and hearing words and verbs that make no sense and they just want you to be immersed and that's a very difficult way for me to read but 
I think I wouldn't be surprised if he took William Gibson took a lot of inspiration from Blade Runner because Blade Runner acts the same way. They just immerse you and they don't really explain a lot about what they're doing and why they're doing it. They just expect you to to watch and pay attention and make assumptions and and to, to kind of go with it. And I think it all kind of begins story and writing wise uh, with the opening credits because we literally just sit and watch credits in the black listening to this synthy futuristic music for like three minutes before they start rolling the text. Uh, the text that sets the story up, you know, what's a replicant and um, what are their place in the world and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so it's three and a half minutes before we have our first image. <laughs> and that's all there, right? To, to set a tone um, and pace for the film, because this whole movie is atmospheric and entirely unrushed. <laughs> like they are, mega taking their time and so it is it's very patient mindful storytelling because overall the story is very very simple we have replicants who are just androids that look exactly like humans and seem to even bleed exactly like humans and they're looking for answers and they're trying to extend their lives but there is a blade runner who's hunting them down that's it that's the entire story. That's that's all that's really happening plot-wise. Now you can pull back layers and start to ask questions and explore uh, some of these elements, like how do they and uh, the replicants feel about this, and who what's their maker? You know, think about all of this, uh, and you get some of those answers. But plot-wise, this is bone dry. Like this is very straightforward and simple. And so I think that works because they lead us down a trail without really spelling it out. You have to really dial in and stay focused on what's happening or else you'll find yourself confused like I've been at times watching this. So, for instance, Zora, the snake tattoo replicant lady, right, the dancer, he goes and investigates Leon's apartment. And presumably, in hindsight, they were all crashing this apartment, right? He's Leon has got a job at the Tyrell Corporation and he's infiltrating it, right? He's trying to work his way up to meet and get answers for who they are and maybe a way to extend their life. Of course, in the opening scene, his infiltration is completely disrupted whenever he gets this test by the the interviewer who also was tested with a bullet and failed. Um, and, and so Leon gets away and he goes, uh, Deckard goes to investigate Leon's apartment. And what does he find? He finds some photos and he also finds a little scale. Like it, it almost looks like an earring. It could be, it could be a million things. Is this, is this a data card? Like we're looking at this. We have no idea. He never says it. And that could have been in, in another film. They would have had Gaff played by Edward James almost. Um, they would have had Gaff over his shoulder saying, Hey, what'd you find? And he would have been like, I don't know. I think it's a fish scale. Like, but in this, he just finds it. He seals it in a baggie for evidence and tucks it away. And that's that. Like it eventually comes back. But if you blink, you miss it uh, because they're not circling back to explain it to you ever. And then he gets home. He's looking through the photos. He inspects the photos um, and he goes through this whole futuristic computer program that's, you know, looking for clues and enhancing the image and, and a reflection. He finds her face and he sees that, oh, she has a, uh, a thing on her face. And we really don't even know what that is. Um, 
And it's, it takes so long before all these things kind of piece themselves together. So he follows up on the scale, right? He goes and he has someone analyze it. He's like, I think it's a fish scale. And they look at it and like, no, it's a snake scale. And they zoom in, it's artificial. It was made by this person. So he goes and he tracks down this lead as any detective would. And suddenly we're now talking to someone else, this other guy, uh, Taffy. And Taffy's like, and this is another opportunity for exposition and they just eject. They're like, nope. He sits down with Taffy and the dude's like, I'm not talking to you. Uh, and he kind of threatens them with, you know, licensing or something. Uh, and the guy's like, Hey, get this guy a drink. And he kind of smiles and shrugs and we cut two. I think at that point, Deckard makes a call to Rachel, uh, that does not end well for him. And then suddenly he's pretending he, now we're backstage at some dancer thing. Again, they've explained none of this. You just have to be like <laughs> very uh, wide eyed and like following along. And what happens, right, is we're we're left wondering, like, was that it? Was that all Taffy, you know, gave him? But we find ourselves with this dancer who has a snake and now he's putting on an act in order to kind of look through his room and confirm his suspicions about who she is. And before he can do that. Uh, she attacks him, nearly kills him and escapes. Chase ensues. He kills her. And the, the whole kill sequence uh, is a slow motion. And what I, I really like about this sequence is the vibe is different. It's not this action vibe. Um, instead, it's, it has this kind of tragic jazz noir essence to it as she's stumbling around to her death um, that eventually reveals a snake tattoo, which... If you've been paying attention, you'll realize that was the final clue he needed uh, in order to confirm, yes, that was her, because that was the trail he had been following uh, along the whole time. But it's very contemplative, her death, and it's very tragic as we're watching Leon seeing what just happened to his friend, um, which is one of the final links in that whole story with her, because he's watching in horror and seeing that this is his future. But there's something else that's kind of interesting there because Deckard seems kind of terrified, too. He doesn't feel relieved. Um, he's just kind of watching and digesting. And you don't know what to make of that. Like, is he rethinking his place in this world? Um, is he worried that maybe he got a human, right? Because Rachel, early on when he meets her, she's like, have you ever accidentally killed a person? He's like, no. But how does he really know? <laughs> like, um, And so this might be his moment of like, oh, crap. Is this, is this the moment when I accidentally killed a human being? Okay, no, there's the tattoo. There's my confirmation for sure. That was, that was her. That was her. You know, and he, you just kind of feel this lingering thing. Cause even after uh, the captain steps in and is like, hey, let's go celebrate. Him and Gaff are ready to go drink it off. And he's not thrilled. He's still not there with them. Um, so there's things happening on in the inside of him. And so we fast forward, you know, a few minutes. Rachel, in his apartment after her death, after Zora's death, there's this interesting little moment that happens where she she uh, asks about that test, that that void comp test. You ever take that yourself, right? And now we're inserting the idea that he could be a replicant, and it's inserting it in us and in him as well. But it's really questioning the difference, as well as inserting that idea. But it's also just kind of questioning the difference between humans and replicants, like. Have you taken it? Is there really a difference between you and me? Is there something more here um, in, in, in the cards? And then something happens that's really interesting. 
Deckard clearly likes her. Something's happening with him and her. He kisses her. And this whole sequence sets off. That's like that. I just had so many questions about because they clearly have sex, but the whole sequence that initiates it invokes a lot of questions, right? He stops her from leaving and he throws her against the wall and he kind of slowly takes her, right? Say, kiss me. She's like, I can't rely on just say, kiss me. I want you tell me you want me. I want you. And then she kind of starts going with it, you know, tells him to put her, put his hands on her. The question that I have as I was watching this one, I was like, okay, is this scene built around the era's kind of machismo, you know, kiss the woman, take the woman kind of idea that society or at least men had, you know, in that era that was at least promulgated throughout the, the culture? Is it, is that where the scene is coming out of or is there something else? Because you can look at it that way. And I think it, it certainly makes sense in that context. Uh, but you could also, if you say, okay, let's put, put more good faith into the storytelling. Is it also may, maybe meant to invoke a question of autonomy for sentient beings uh, or sentient robots? Like, does it matter that he has permission or not? If she's a robot, um, does she have self you know, autonomy? Um, if she's not a human being. And so there's a, another layer of questions you can certainly start putting putting to it. But then you could, you know, kind of retract a little bit more. Uh, because if you go back to after he gets home from Tyrell Corporation, right, where he has this conversation about her memories, like Rachel doesn't know she's a replicant. And she leaves the room and Deckard is like, how is that possible that she doesn't know she's a replicant? And Tyrell spells it out. We even planted memories of her, of my niece's own experiences. And we made them in a way that she thinks that's her, her experiences. She thinks that's her memories. And he's blown away. And he's, and, he, and that's where we leave that scene. He says, you're talking about memories. And then we cut to him getting home and pondering on this. And eventually he sits down and plays the piano and we get this image of a unicorn running through the forest and we cut from him to the unicorn back to him and he's just thinking. So the idea there is that this is a memory. They don't do it very cleanly, but this is a memory. And now you fast forward again to the scene of him hooking up with Rachel. You can ask another question beyond the era's context beyond these uh, autonomy, self-control or self-ownership of a sentient robot. You could also ask the question, is he teaching her that she's more than just a replicant? Because his desire might humanize her, but it also might humanize himself if he himself is, is a replicant. And so there's a, all these other things that you could infer from this interaction um, because for her, she's now wrestling with her own humanity. Um, if she's not a person and she's a robot, she can't. And that's, I think, where she was trying to go. I can't rely on my own feelings and my own uh, because maybe I'm not real. And he's telling her, say what you feel. And this is what I think you feel. Just say it. And he's trying to get her to go along and, and to take ownership of her uh, of herself and of her life. And then maybe he's also within that wrestling with his own uh, problematic memories like am I who I think I am as well? And so I think there's a lot that you can wrestle with in, in, within that little interaction. It's uh, fascinating. Um, and I think in hindsight, 
you know, I think he's dealing with, I need to make sure she feels like a person. Um, and I think her feeling desired and having desires humanizes her and, and in so doing makes him feel better about himself. And it, it's kind of soothing to him, uh, in his own attempt at kind of grasping at his, the straw of humanity that he's, he's always felt that he has. Hmm. Uh, uh, that's, so, so the, that whole scene you think is more of the machismo a little kind bit of like era. I, yeah, maybe so. I think it's, it's combining that with, let's look at it another way. What happens if she walks out now? He has to wrestle with his own mortality alone. Whereas if he can kind of foist humanity onto her, maybe he's not alone then. Hmm. Solitude might have been a, a prison sentence for him in that moment. And I don't think he was really ready to wrestle with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe all of it. Okay. Maybe all of it combined. I think their approach to that scene probably was still born out, out of the machismo of the era. There's another way to do that scene that doesn't require that type of aggression. But I think they were still wanting to get at these other elements of her kind of owning herself and owning her own feelings. Yeah, it feel it felt really weird to me because I'm glad you called that out because I you know, it seems like that I always feel awkward in and and that one in particular because okay, let's look at it. Let's look at it from the point of view of 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 his character and how how we've the time we've spent with his character. So, you know, he's a hardcore guy who, you know, he was used to be Used to be a detective, uh, Blade Runner left, but then they called him back in because he's the best and and everything. And so you're thinking, okay, I know, I get, I get this guy, you know, right? He's that guy. But then he, you know, when he kills, uh, what's her name, Snake Lady, when he kills her, that whole like he used to do this. Like this was, this isn't new. This isn't a new scenario that he's in now, right? And so seeing him war with himself like that didn't really fit what I expected, right? To what I had my vision of who this guy was the whole time leading up really. Right. And so, and then, but then it flips back to, oh, this is the kind of guy that I expected to get when in that scene with, uh, with her, where he pulls her aside and says, says to kiss her, kiss him and stuff. And so, and so it, it, that, it, that's why it felt, I felt like I was seeing a new side of this guy after he killed her and then and then oh no i'm not seeing a new side you know during the love scene so or before the love scene so that's why i kind of that's and that's the kind of stuff that like threw me off the the whole film i feel like there were other moments mm -hmm. like that especially with his character um that just kind of made me feel like okay i know there's a reason for that because really scott's brilliant and because you know i it, I know that there is, but I just don't feel it. I don't, I don't see it. And that was definitely one of them because it made me think, I, cause I thought the same thing. I thought, okay, is this just, is this just cause it's 1982 and it's, it's, you know, guys are strong. And so we make them strong in movies or is it because he's a human and she's, and she's a robot and he, he can make her do what she wants. But if that's the case, then he's just as shitty as all the other guys. Either way, he's just as shitty as all the other guys in either case. And I'd, I'm just like, really? Well, then why do we have this whole introspective introspection of him after 
after hmm. the kill earlier. So, um, and then, and then, uh, later in the end and sorry, I'll get you mm-hmm. back on your, your course, but, and then later in the end when he's, you know, when he's, uh, being chased, right. And, and, you know, running away, it felt to me a little like, uh, I need to go watch it again, but it felt to me a little like, like a kid running away from somebody during a, t- a game of tag more mm-hmm. than I'm running for my life. I don't, and it's not that I know it's not that he was obviously scared and he was obviously trying to get away and didn't, you know, and everything, but it was, it was like, he was a scared kitty cat, you know, and which doesn't feel like the machismo guy Mm -hmm. that we've also been given the whole rest of the film. So maybe he's both. And maybe that's the point Mm. that even those guys, those, those guys are also, you know, the scared kitty cat. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm just going to, I'm going to chalk it up to that. Cause yeah, I, yeah. I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, to be honest, I think, yeah, because let's, let's get into that last sequence in the, in the building. And so he gets a call, right. To go investigate Sebastian's building. And as a slight aside, uh, there is something interesting about that building. The building is called the Bradbury and, it's visual like candy. It's a it's a interesting visual like cue, I guess. But what I also find interesting is the title Bradbury, uh, which invokes Ray Bradbury. Now, work with me because it's gonna sound like I'm just making stuff up here. Um, Dig Ray Bradbury okay. <laughs> wrote a book called Fahrenheit 451, right? And so I feel like this universe has links to that it seems like there's some light referencing going on and now it's not meant to be like a, a parallel or a, a a perfect analog to it or any or or, or that um, but it does seem like there's some conceptual overlap or at least plot overlap right so fahrenheit 451 takes place in a future where books are illegal right and firemen in the future go and burn those books like that firemen in the the in Fahrenheit 451 don't actually put out fires they start them and they they destroy books right knowledge is illegal right and so I feel like Roy Batty seems his naming convention seems to be a reference to Ray Bradbury and also one of one of the characters in Fahrenheit 451 which is Captain Beatty and so it seems like there's some name play going on combining um, Roy Batty with Ray Beatty. Um, and it's a very simple on its face thing. But I think what kind of put me over the top in making this connection was, do you want to know what year Fahrenheit 451 takes place in? Well, 2049, which, as you will know, is no coincidence mm-hmm. um, yeah. for the sequel. And so I feel pretty confident they're 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 linking these uh, interesting uh, thematically um, in wow. ways. And to me, the, the, the linking would be, you know, some people discover things about themselves or about society that society doesn't like, and they go on the lamb. Um, and in this case, in Fahrenheit, I think we were on one side if, and on Blade Runner, we're kind of on the other side. We're on, we're in the shoes of Deckard, who's hunting these outcasts. Whereas in Fahrenheit, we're the outcasts. We're taking that perspective. And so there's, 
yeah, and they're both dystopians, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so there's, there, I feel like if I were to go back and read Fahrenheit 451, which I haven't done since I think junior high, uh, there would probably be a lot more in there. And so if anyone's read it recently or uh, dives into it, you know, feel free to share other ways that these kind of talk to each other uh, in, in fun, interesting ways. But Roy, right, uh, breaks Deckard's fingers. Bang, bang. Then he hands him the gun back. And so I think this gets to your point that you're saying, like, it felt like tag. And I think it was because um, Roy clearly wasn't very hellbent on actually killing Deckard. He was trying to do something else. And so he breaks his fingers. Deckard is running, trying to escape. He jumps to this next building and he's hanging on by a thread. Right. And we do this slow push in that adds all this dramatic tension and fear. Could this be it for him? Is he going to fall? Um, and it just raises the tension by putting all this extra visual significance on this moment. And Roy jumps over easily and watches him dangle. And w then he starts monologuing at him. He's like, quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. Um, and he's trying to get something, something across to Deckard that I think he's wanting him to be a vessel for hope to his kind. And Deckard slips and lightning fast, Roy grabs him and saves him. And you have to ask, why save him? He could have killed him at any time, let alone there. There he would have died on his own. He didn't even have to do anything. But I think he did it to, he saved him to teach him. Um, and it's similar to uh, earlier in the film, right, where uh, Leon has that same moment where he's about to kill him and he's not actually trying that hard to kill him for a while. Anyway, at, at a certain point, he's about to lean into it, uh, but he, he grabs him at first and he asks him the exact same question. See, how does it feel to live in fear? And then he, of course, you know, bites the, the bullet. No pun intended. Um, and. There's there's that moment where earlier in the film, Roy meets his maker, right? Tyrell, and he kills him. There was nothing Tyrell was going to do to advance the replicant, I guess, cause. And so why kill your maker to exert power and self-control and maybe to cease all of this, uh, the, the, the hate or the... the chaos maybe i don't know i think it's more about self-control and exerting your own power um over your maker this is a very uh, man just killing god you know concept and then of course we get to the final sequence when he after roy saves deckard and he lays down and then the soundbite that we played ensues right all those moments will be lost in time like tears and rain time to die and then this dove flies away, right? That's super on the nose, uh, symbolic, um, representative of his spirit leaving, right? In Christian theology, the, the dove is very representative of this, the, the Holy Ghost. Um, and they're kind of playing on that same, uh, visual metaphor of his spirit having left. And overall, his monologue, that little, you know, two, three sentences, that is the story of, uh, of what it means to be human, which is experience. And he's describing very real experiences and he's been showing us very real fears and they love and they have very real thoughts, right? Uh, Pris, uh, talking to Sebastian says, I think therefore I am. And so why shouldn't they be treated with humanity like humanity? Um, and so it's, 
the the point of all this, right, is to ask this very fundamental question about autonomy and what does it mean to be human um, and how are these replicants so different from humanity ourselves just because they were genetically uh, created or built in a lab. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they still have experiences that are identical to humanity. And it's a very, maybe at some someday we're going to have to answer this question of what does it mean to be human and when should we grant sentient beings the same protections um, as the rest of humanity. Uh, and that's something I think we're all, you know, at some point or another going to have to answer. When does that line cross? And so ex machina, ex machina, right? Like mm -hmm. there's so much to explore, explore there. And so Deckard goes home to Rachel and they had this conversation and he asks her, do you love me? And she says, I love you. And he says, then trust me. I trust you. And they run away. And that's when Deckard walks out and finds Gaff's calling card, right? It's an origami of a unicorn and it's finalizing Deckard is a replicant. I don't think there's any other way to read this version of Blade Runner. Now there's like seven or eight different edits of this movie. I think five were ultimately officially released, but in this telling of it, Deckard is a replicant. Obviously there's no real such thing as a, as a unicorn. If, if you made a unicorn, I guess it, I, if they can make snakes, I guess they could technically, you know, make unicorns. But uh, the idea there is to implant that Deckard had a false memory and now Gaff is hunting him and he left his calling card, this little unicorn origami. And so that's the importance of the unicorn we see earlier. It's spelling out why he also fell in love with Rachel because that's his own kind. And now he's running away with his own kind. Um, they're both about to be hunted. Yeah. And so it's, it's one big conversation piece about what it means to be human and have human rights. Um, and you can, and the, I think the fun thing with this kind of film, because of how thin it is on that conversation is you can explore it in a lot of ways. You can explore it from the standpoint of society, our current social structure, do lower class laborers, uh, have the same amount of humanity as the upper class, uh, whatever the 1%, you know, however you want to frame that, you could probably pull a conversation about that out. I think because it's so sci-fi driven, it invites a lot of those conversations. But for me, I think the more interesting conversation is the idea of sentience. And when do you cross that line? Does a, does the fact that we make something bestow it with subhuman rights? Especially when the thing you make is capable of killing you, as you know, was demonstrated by Tyrell's death. I don't know. I think it's it's a fun conversation, and I, I think ultimately that was kind of the the goal of it all. Yeah. So you like the movie a lot? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And How, I, if we would have done, if you would have watched it once, and we would have done this, what would you have said? It would have been brutal. I would have destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I would have said everything you said and probably like tripled down on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I agree with all of that stuff. Yeah. I do. I do. But, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, man, it, it, it feels to me a little bit like uh, having a five star meal out of a lunchbox. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A yeah. little bit like, well, how you receive it has a lot to do with how it tastes. 
even if it has nothing to do with how it tastes. Um, and that's kind of the way, I don't know. It kind of feels like that to me in that, and look what they did in, in early, early eighties, unbelievable, right? There's a reason. And that's why I started off by saying shit looks amazing. Mm -hmm. The fact that they were able to do all that is just incredible. They had the, even if they didn't have the ability, they found a way, right? Like there, I'm sure that they invented things that had never been invented before for this film. And that's, you know, that's the whole point of cinema of like, of, of, uh, sci-fi cinema, right? The reason why Star Trek is forever one of the, one of the greatest shows, like, you know, like sci-fi shows or sci-fi movies of all time is because it advanced society in it's just, just in its ideation of warp drive of, uh, of beam me up Scotty of all of these things. And so, and because of that, so much more got was invented or, or thought of, or, you know, like not, I'm not even just talking about cinema. And I think that this is also another, another example of that. And I love that. I, you know, we talk ad nauseum about really liking when movies take their time and when they don't give us too much exposition. And so that this movie absolutely did that (laughs) almost to a fault to me, not almost to a fault to me. Um, and, um, so, so yeah, there's that, but would I change it? No, it's fine for there to be movies that go the extreme other direction. Totally fine. You know, in fact, I prefer that. I do. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if I want to sit down and have a popcorn movie, yeah, I want you to, you know, give me something. Lay it on thick, yeah. Right, right. But if if you're gonna if you're gonna mess with my head, okay, well, here we go. I, it's up to me to know I'm to like like really be present, like you said, for the journey that is yeah. that story. And if you're not, then you get punished by not liking it. Yeah. That's your punishment. <laughs> yeah. I guess. But to your, uh, yeah, and yeah. they did so many cool things in terms of like visual effects, practical effects. Uh, I think they did a lot of uh, kit bashing, which was back in the day you could pull apart, you know, model toys or whatever. You go into a model store and buy a model aircraft, uh, planes and boats and um, probably a million other things I've never heard of. And I think what they did, I'm pretty sure they did it on this one was kit bashing where you take all those things and you and you combine them to create new things and i know in like star wars they did all kinds of crazy stuff pulling apart vacuums and using you know just anything that looked like if you painted it it could be something completely different um, i love that and it's cool. <laughs> it's cool and i'm pretty sure uh there's like the millennium falcon is actually in blade runner as one of the set pieces attached to the side of a building i want to say uh i want to oh say God. it's like the tyrell corporation i forget um okay um, so you're gonna go find it you just go through and find it and right. you'll put it in the show notes yeah i'll put it in the show notes because i'm not going through <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's you know it's really cool and i think it also really motivated uh some of the design choices and aesthetics because they built miniatures you know of the city uh in order to capture it as you know realistically as possible and to give it dirt and grit and texture uh especially because at that time you know cg was just not really popping um you had to do much more complex uh visual effects um and the easiest way was to build miniatures and so in 2049 and blade runner 2049 the, the sequel 
they they stayed with that. They went and built very large scale miniatures uh, for the film. And so I'm working on uh, getting a couple of people for that um, who worked on Blade Runner 2049. Um, and maybe we'll get to pick their brains. As you can imagine, these are very busy people. So uh, if that doesn't pop off, I, you know, that's, that's the breaks, you know, yeah. uh, when you're trying to work with people who awesome. are at the top of their game. And so hopefully that'll happen. Um, and you'll have to stay tuned for that. But yeah, I think they did so many cool things. And there's one other, I'm going to go back and rewatch or watch for the first time, the theatrical version, which has a bunch of voiceover. Um, because here's the thing. A lot of the test audiences had the same experience you did where they were just like, I didn't, well, maybe I should say the experience that I did because, you know, I, I watched it and I was like, I don't, I didn't know what was happening. I was confused. And, and so they were like, okay, they went back and added a, a voiceover and that was the first theatrical releases, uh, this kind of cheesy voiceover of Decker narrating his internal monologue, um, and explaining certain things that. I think work to some degree, I think the delivery needed work because it, it has a very Humphrey Bogart. I've, I watched the first like five or 10 minutes. Um, and you can just hear, you know, this kind of, and then the dame walked into my office with the longest legs you've ever seen. Yeah. It just kind of has this, uh, <laughs> read to it that you're like, Oh gosh, yeah. um, that that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. whereas I think if you space it out a little bit more and maybe make it a little more darker and fit the, the visuals yeah. of what you're seeing, I think that could have played stronger. Um, and he's like in a trench coat and it's rainy. It's yeah, like totally like, Bogart. Yeah. Very good point. I, I remember f I, when I, when I first heard it, I was like, Oh no, really? Oh, I don't think, oh gosh. Uh, I felt the same thing and I didn't even know, understand why. <laughs> oh yeah. So I'm excited to kind of watch that. I've never seen that version of it before. And so uh, I'm, I'm curious. I don't know when I'll watch it, maybe in the next couple of weeks uh, before I get too far away from this version. But yeah. So uh, yeah, that said, what are you going to recommend this week? So interesting. I'm going to go like, you know, nowhere in this category at all and recommend something that I didn't think that I would because it's been tried before and failed, but I'm going to recommend the suicide squad that is uh, streaming right now on HBO. I think it's, I don't know if it's still in theaters or not, but streaming mm -hmm. on HBO. Uh, I sat down and watched it um, cause I wanted to watch a movie and <laughs> it was, it was funny because at first I was like, do I, do I like this? I don't, I completely expected not to like it because of, you know, what happened in the past with the last one and, yeah. and everything. But, uh, I gotta say it just kept getting better and better and better throughout the film to the point where when I was done and I don't know, it might've been two o'clock in the morning when I was done. I don't know when I was texting you, but I texted you. I was like, dude, this is really good. <laughs> I was so surprised. Uh, uh yeah. So I'm going to recommend the suicide squad, uh, streaming on HBO. Nice. Yep. I'm going to recommend a, a book I read that was a recommendation from a friend, um, my friend Song, uh, who I've shot with before. She's she's done some of my videos. Uh, she did. She was in one of my recent videos with the uh, the, the skateboard 
skate park video and her dad wrote her, uh, his first novel. And so I checked it out. I read it and I really enjoyed it. It's a really good read, you know? So if you're looking for a new sci-fi book, um, that's big on ideas and it's very evenly paced and, you know, it's not in a rush. Uh, it just doesn't land you in this world and kind of hit you over the head, uh, with how sci-fi it is. Um, then I highly recommend it. It's called the sixth traveler by Kevin M Faulkner. Um, and if for no other reason, you know, you know, it's always nice to support, uh, artists and especially someone who took the time years to write their first book. I think that's, you know, really inspirational to me and really cool. And actually I got to interview them and discuss it. If you're on our Patreon, that's already up there. And I think I'm going to release that interview to the YouTube public within the next week or two. Um, so check, keep an eye on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to hear that interview, it was really fun just to sit and discuss someone Cause I'm a writer, but I, I don't write novels, right? I write scripts and screenplays. So having another writer to talk to about a completely different medium, uh, was really fun. Uh, and so that was a, that was a really cool conversation. Um, and so if you want to check that out, keep an eye on our YouTube channel. And I think at the end of the year, uh, I'll release it as a standalone episode, um, as well. And so, yeah, keep your eye on that and go check out The Sixth Traveler by Kevin M. Faulkner. You can find it pretty much anywhere. Amazon is probably the easiest place. But yeah, and stay tuned uh, for next week. Oh, actually, no. One more recommendation. We have a we have an artist spotlight this week. Uh, a little album by Kiona called Midnight Holiday. Just got a big re-release. It's on every streaming platform. Apple Music and Spotify um, and probably a, a dozen others, but obviously those are the big ones. Kiona, Midnight Holiday, you should check that out. Todd, have you heard of these guys? Yeah, they're terrible. They're <laughs> no, terrible. They're listen to it. <laughs> yeah, that's my band. That's my band. We re-released the album. Um, it's uh, It's been down for a couple of years. We were doing some other things with it, but uh, decided to go back to it and put it out there because we were getting a lot of requests for it, actually. So yeah, it's out as of the 27th, uh, so feel free to go stream, and we'd love to know what you think. Put it in the show notes, send us a, a note, that'd be that'd be fantastic. Love to hear your thoughts. Were there any changes that y'all made, any updates, or was this uh, just repackaging and making sure those it was streaming everywhere? Yeah, just putting it back up. We, we didn't do anything to it. There's nothing that uh, we would want to do to it, honestly, like... Yeah. Um, it was one of those, it was one of those things that took a long time to make and it was everything. It was like a snapshot of us in the moment. And so it's not like there's nothing that we want to do to it. Of course we want to do a lot to it, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to look forward, not back. I think we all are. So, uh, so no, we just, we just put it back up there for, for people to listen to. That's awesome. Yeah. There's a yeah, famous quote, uh, ironically by uh, George Lucas, who said a film is never done only abandoned. Um, and yeah, I think most art is that way. Like you just finally like, okay, I just need to take my hands off and release it to the world. <laughs> yeah. At some point you just have to, you have to quit. You have yeah. to stop. You know, uh, I think a lot of artists, uh, I'm okay with that now. I used to have the problem of not being able to do that, but now I'm okay with it. So yeah. Yeah, very excited that it's out. We've gotten a lot of uh, good reviews so far, and uh, uh, we'll see we'll see what happens. But not really hoping for anything. We're just, you know, we wanted to put it back out again. Well, we're working on another on some more music now, and uh, really excited about that. And uh, yeah, but thanks for the shout out, man. Appreciate Dude, it. That's awesome. 
Very cool. Well, stay tuned next week for Blade Runner 2049. We're going to follow up and see uh, what happened to all these replicant peoples. And uh, or is everywhere? Is, is, it, is it over? Is Blade Runner 2049 really just a two and a half hour cooking show? We, we don't know. We don't know where it's going to where it's going to go. <laughs> anything's possible <laughs> longest episode of that great british bake-off ever <laughs> and most expensive they grow their own blueberries um, yes nice if you're enjoying the show uh the pestle podcast then feel free to subscribe review us on itunes uh leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about or cover a show um things that you find interesting you know let us know and if you want to comment on this episode in particular you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash blade runner and our quote of the day is from philip k dick just because something bears the aspect of the inevitable one should not therefore go along willingly with it that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And in so many ways, whether you're talking about, you know, replicants and, or, or whatever, or, you know, if, if you're, if you're feeling sad, right. Hmm. A lot of times it just feels like it'll never go away, but you know, just stay with it. Right. Yeah. And I think that, man, yeah, it's beautiful. I'd never heard that before. Good, no. good choice. Yeah. Yeah. And it, obviously, you know, it plays right in line with, the the story we're talking about and that's the that's the nice thing that i really you know appreciate about this film is there's really not a hard judgment being made against the replicants if you really you know watch the movie and hear what it's saying instead of your own uh assumptions like they they never it never makes the replicants out to be all that evil i mean Clearly, they they kill a couple people, um, and that deserves you know uh, attention. But you also have to ask, uh, were they justified in, in self defense? Because at the same time, those were people that were trying to kill them. Um, it was they weren't there by their own volition. They were placed in this uh, circumstance, um, and so are they wrong for fighting for their own uh, you know mortality and. And so there's, there's, you know, such a, a good conversation that you can have around that. Um, and it can be applied in a multitude of ways that uh, just because something looks inevitable, uh, you know, rage, rage against the dying of the light, you know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Got to fight for it. Yeah. I, I, I love it, man. Fantastic. This is, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for, you kind of opened my eyes a little bit to some, some, you know, possible aspects that I might like on a, on a, a second viewing. So, uh, the next time I watch, I'll, I will watch it within the next year again, uh, for sure. Uh, cause I, I want to have that experience. I, you know, like no one likes to say, Oh, that, you know, uh, 2001. Yeah. I hated <laughs> right, it. Right. You know, like yeah. it, star Wars awful. <laughs> you know, no one wants to be that, that person. Yeah. Um, and so I do like, you know, it's not it's not like I, I want my opinion to match other people's, mm -hmm. but I do want to see, find, okay, why is this, you know, looked at as such a such a seminal work, right? Yeah. And what am I missing, you know? And so you opened my eyes a lot to that. So thank you for that, awesome. man. Awesome. Thanks, man. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for joining us. This has been a long one, but it's been really, really wonderful. Um, join us next week. We'll be, uh, we'll be doing 2049. Uh, so make sure you watch that. Uh, before coming in because we're going to spoil that too uh, but until then I'm Todd I'm Wes go watch the movies we're back we're back baby 